All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuckadelics? What the what the fuck Tuckians? What the fucksicans? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my show. Today on the show, I talked to the New York Times comedy critic. That's Jason Zinneman. I'll be honest with you, I didn't want to like the guy when we started, and, and I found it to be a great conversation. He's got a, uh, a book coming out. Uh, he had a, a sort of uh, amazing access to David Letterman, and he wrote Letterman, the Giant of Late Night. That comes out uh, a little later this month. Is it April yet? Yeah, it is, right? April 11th. You can pre-order it now, so that's me and Jason Zinneman. Then uh, Hank Azaria. Azaria wanted to stop by. Because he's got a new show on IFC, a network that I'm familiar with, called Brock Meyer. So he said uh, he wanted to come by and talk about that and check in and say hello. That's always an exciting situation when Hank Azaria wants to come by and hang out for a minute. He's kind of a live wire, that dude. So Austin, Texas, gracias. What a fucking great couple of days I had there. This is really, this is really the first time I went out to Austin outside of the Moon Tower Festival in a long time. So it was just me at the Paramount. And I think we came pretty close to selling that thing out. And uh, was what a spectacular fucking theater that is. And what what great audiences, man. And Austin is... I, I'll walk you through Austin. Let me... First, I'd like to read this uh, handwritten letter, if I could. A woman... And her husband were back, uh, you know, in the back alley with some other fans after the show. I went out the back door. She gave me some brownies that she made. I said, are these on the level? She goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm sober, too. Totally on the level. She gave me some on-the-level brownies and this letter that I I read later in my room. Hey, Mark, I'm writing this in the car in Austin traffic while my husband drives us to your show. Much like you, my process does not include much prep. It's well within the possibilities of my life that upon meeting you, I will get very nervous and not be able to tell you how much I enjoy and appreciate your podcast and stand-up. It is the closest I can get to listening to my dad talk again. He died suddenly of a heart attack last year, and what I really missed most was listening to his manic, excited appreciation and critique of music and movies. Him and I saw countless live shows and movies together, and I credit him for my deep love of various media. You and him are about the same age and shared many of the same experiences, so hearing your viewpoint and your stories has given me a feeling I thought I wouldn't ever have again. So thank you for sharing yourself with all of us. I think that much like my dad, you'll never truly know how many lives you've touched. Keep up the great work, sir. We love you for it. Jenna. So you're welcome, Jenna, and thanks for the brownies. That ate a couple of, and then then couldn't sleep. So they were on the level, but man, they were chocolatey and sugary. I was up and thinking till about three in the morning. Then I had weird dreams. The reason I read Jenna's letter first here is because the manic excitement. So here's what happens in fucking Austin, Texas. I get there. I fight the fight with self. I'm going to Opie's. I going out to Spicewood. I got, I rented a car. I didn't call anybody I know. I just sort of like, I'm doing this myself. I'm going out there. You walk in, they got the meats in the uh, open casket, dead smoker, and you pick your meats. The woman who owns the place, Kristen, she's always nice to me when I go there. So I walk in and I see her. She says she wants to go to the show. 
She said she couldn't get tickets. So I'm like, I'll put you on the list. No problem. I had a good meal. I drove back to the hotel. I was just in a meat coma, in a sugar coma. And, and I, I didn't feel great, but I was happy that, that I enjoyed myself. So I get up from the meat nap. I go out the door, go next door to Joe's Coffee. I'm sitting there having a coffee. And I, the guy walks by me on the street. I'm like, holy shit, that's Jimmy Vivino from Conan O'Brien, one of my favorite guitar players and friend of mine, and he's just walking down the street in Austin. And I go, Jimmy, what's up? He goes, oh, hey, man, uh, I'm just in town. I'm going to hang out with Jimmy Vaughn tonight, and uh, we're going to jam. I'm like, wait, what? Jimmy Vaughn's here? Yeah, he lives here, and when he's not on the road, he just goes Friday and Saturday. He plays up the street, and I thought I'd fly in, sit in with him, hang out. friend of mine. I'm like, wait, Jimmy Vaughn, one of my favorite fucking guitar players, is playing tonight, and you're going to sit in? He's like, yeah, why do you keep repeating that? I'm paraphrasing this and probably adding things to it to make it funny. But I'm like, holy shit, I'm at the Paramount tonight. You want to go? He's like, yeah. I'll say, I'll put you on the list. He goes, then we'll go up, and we'll hang out with Jimmy. I'm like, are you fucking, Yeah. Fuck yeah. So now I'm all I'm thinking about is hanging out with Jimmy Vaughn and watching Jimmy Vaughn's fingers play. Who I, I've not seen Jimmy Vaughn, who's Stevie Ray's brother. And between me and you, I like his guitar playing better. So I'm fucking excited. So now I'm going into the show. But I forgot to add a thing. Kristen over at Opie said, y you know, I'm going to bring somebody tonight. And I'm like, well, that's great. He go and she goes, well, I'll tell you who, because you might know him. Uh, uh, Chuck Woolery who lives out here now, he's a friend of mine, we hang out, and I'm like, well, yeah, I'm thinking, like, wait, Chuck Woolery, isn't he sort of like a, kind of a conservative guy that is a bit outspoken and maybe a little trollish on the uh, social media? Has he made some right-wing scenes on the social networking sites? I didn't say all that, but it was going through my head, so I figured I'd, I'd about it, I had to tell her, I'm like, look, you know, I, I gotta be honest with you, I don't know how old Chuck's gonna respond to the show, I am sort of doing some, you know, some material uh, about the scoundrel at the helm, who's, uh, you know, delivering humanity into a dark cloud uh, right now as we speak. I said, I'm, I'm doing some shit. I don't know how long to go on for, but, you know, I don't need Chuck Woolery, host of several game shows, uh, to get up in the middle of the show and storm out as those type of people, not him necessarily, but Trump supporters are, are want to do, just, you know, tantrum out like little babies that can't th sit through 15 minutes of reasonably funny criticism of a guy that deserves it, but... I tell her all this. She goes, no, he's a good sport. He's, he's got a good sense of humor. It'll be fun. So now I got that in the back of my head. I got, hell yeah, I'm going to see Jimmy Vaughn. Hell yeah, I'm going to do a big show at the Paramount. And oh shit, Chuck Woolery's going to be there. I go on stage. You know, I had this wonderful opener. LaShonda Lester did a great job. I go out and I'm like, in the back of my head, I'm like, I don't want to go on too long because I'm going to go see Jimmy Vaughn. And I do about an hour and a half. I close on something new. And the audience is fucking spectacular. Just awesome. Uh, it just It's a great theater and it was a great show. And uh, I did things I'd never done before, which is always great for me. And then I'm like, I got to get up to C-Boys to see Jimmy Vaughn playing his Fender Eldorado. Weird guitar, hard to find. Watching those fingers, hearing that phrasing. I, I was in it, man. I was there for like three hours. And then Jimmy Vivino got up there and jammed with him. And it was fucking great. It was fucking great. It was a genuine good time, and people were having a good time. Just dancing, hanging out, watching, getting old-timey. Nice vibe. I met Jimmy. Maybe he'll come on the podcast. It was a real honor to meet Jimmy Vaughn. I hadn't seen him since he played with the Fabulous Thunderbirds when I was in fucking high school at the Golden Inn in Golden, New Mexico, in between Santa Fe and Albuquerque. 
It was a biker bar that eventually burnt down. But I remember going up to see the Fabulous Thunderbirds because I had those first two records and I had a shark skin suit and I was greasing my hair up and I probably had an old timey tie and I went up there, got shit faced, danced my fucking high school ass off to the Fabulous Thunderbirds and made it home alive. And that was the last time I saw Jimmy Vaughn. And I asked him if he remembered that. And uh, he didn't even pretend that he did. And as a side note, uh, Chuck Woolery apparently had a great time. Hank Azaria is here. He's got a new show on IFC. It's called Brock Meyer. Uh, it premieres on Wednesday, April 5th. He wanted to come over. I said, sure, Hank, let's, let's chat. So we did that. Here it is. What do you mean, fly out? Did you move? I live in New York now. You do? I do. I moved there three years ago. Since the last time I talked to you? Yes, definitely. Really? Yeah. Why? I'm a New Yorker at heart. I love New York. You're in, right in the city? In the Upper West Side. Yeah? Yeah. Huh. I wanted to raise my son in New York. I wanted to raise a Mets fan, is the simplest way to put it. And you're totally out of LA? Yeah. Was that a relief? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah right <laughs> big time <laughs> I, I, think I mean it, god bless you <laughs> yeah i think about it all the time pal i think about it all the time well you know look uh, ben stiller's a friend of mine who, he, he was right in westchester right yeah yeah I, I, yeah we're not far from, we have a little summer place not far from where he lives uh-huh. out there. and you know it's just nice to be able to shut off show business in new york it show business is 174th right of society exactly and, and you can walk outside and there are people. Totally. And you walk and just lose yourself in the crowds and the humanity. Exactly. Yeah, it's great. Well, I know, you know, my son, I walked down the street with my son, he would see more of life and diversity in people in a in literally 20 seconds in a block yeah. than he would see in three months out here. That's right. Yeah, I, I like it, but for me, the, it, it cuts both ways. Like, eventually, I'm exhausted. It is stressful. <laughs> you, know, you do need an outlet. You need to escape yeah. to get out. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I, I mean, because I was there for years. And then one day I was on a subway, you know, with someone's you know sweaty face next to my head. Yeah. Who I didn't know. And I'm like, oh. I'm tired. Well, okay. that's, that is, the personal space thing actually does become very stressful. You find yourself getting literally yeah. physically edgy, yeah, wanting like to shove my... people out of your way. <laughs> yeah. 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 But aside from that. <laughs> Apart from that. <laughs> it's great. It's at least show business is is dialed down. But uh, but IFC is there, so uh, IFC is there. Yes. So you know you're close to the to the source that you'll be working with. You can just run down to the IFC office and say, <laughs> "What the fuck is happening?" <laughs> you don't have to use a phone. If you got an extra hour, you can go down and and uh, just barge into Jen Caserta's office. Exactly. And go you like, know all the players there. <laughs> yeah, I just honeymooners that I just yell out the window. Hey, Jen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What the hell? <laughs> Is it Brockmeyer? Jim Brockmeyer. Brockmeyer. I think I might have. Did I talk about this? A lot? I Baseball don't know. announcer. Oh, okay. Uh, one of these guys who sounds like this. Yeah. Who I grew up listening to. Yeah. I don't know why they all sounded like this, Mark, right. but they did. Why yeah. was this the voice? Yeah. Why was this the generic vanilla announcer right. voice? Well, I think it was because that's how broadcasting was taught. I guess. <laughs> Right, but <laughs> and it wasn't only the baseball guys yeah. and the sports guys. Yeah. It was the guy who sold you the Ginsu knife. All of them. It, yeah, it was just this voice. Yeah, and I was growing up fascinated with voices, and I, uh, the the comic premise that I started with 
long time ago was do these guys always sound like this like, sure do, sure you know do they sound like me and you it's almost a stand-up bit yes yeah well it was i mean jim medward jim edwards he used to a really funny oh, baseball announcer thing a lot of guys george yeah, carlin did sure. a really funny one. robert klein did yeah. a hilarious one yeah yeah uh but i always wondered if these guys are like do they come home you know, honey, what is for dinner? I am starving. I'll yeah. tell you what. You know, do they, <laughs> when they have sex, they just like, oh man, my Brockmire, not taking yeah. any chances, starting off with a missionary. Yeah, yeah. And oh, surprise finger in the keister. Brockmire's into it. I mean, so that was the idea. Yeah. And then it became like, what if he flipped out on the air? And then what if he was basically like Winnebago Man? What if he became like a viral video? Oh, so that was- Got famous for flipping out. So we're talking about the pilot. Yeah, yeah, we're talking about. Like, well, I did know. it as a short on Funny or Die. Yeah, it was that premise of the bro- like as if he was a real broadcaster, and he ha- and he just loses it. Yeah, he gets drunk. He walks on his wife having sex with someone, gets drunk, and you know goes on the air. Yeah, my <laughs> welcome back, folks, to the bottom half with a fucking whore. Yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> and the idea of the premise of a guy who's established somehow and losing it yes. as the beginning. I always liked that because I, I, I actually have put together a show about a guy who was an ad advertising guy, copywriter, right. who snaps because of the corporate pressure and he sees the truth right. and ends up naked in a fountain and then he decides to do good work, right. like, you know, help the world. Went nowhere. But I mean, I like the idea. No, it's a chestnut. It's a, yeah. it's a, it's a good nugget. That'll, it'll work if you can yeah. find the gold in there. So I, who'd you write it with? I didn't write a very talented writer named Joel Church Cooper. Yeah, uh, wrote them all, but it was your idea. It was based on a short that I wrote with okay. some friends of mine, and then. But you're like created by Hank Azaria and the other. Yeah, yeah. Act, technically, it's based on a character created by Hank Azaria, which is more technical. Well, let Hank. me tell you something. That back end money on IFC, you're lucky <laughs> oh, yeah, you got your name on there. <laughs> Listen, it took me so many years to make this thing. I'm so happy that I made it, and I like it. And IFC, as we said before we sat down, they really do let you do what you want to do. It is hard to get eyeballs. Well, that's right. They're, well, they're great. You know, Jen's great and uh, Christine is great. And the people I work with, they were very supportive. They gave us a lot of room. People will watch it. And eventually, you know, they watch it on Netflix if it gets there, like right. my show. I would be happy. Like, I'd, lo- I'd love to have buzz and critics. Yeah. But, uh, you know, just... I'm happy with the show, and if we get to make it for a while, that's also good. But, you know, you, once you're done with it, you're like, well, I did this beautiful thing, and it's out there, and people can watch it. I actually thought of you a lot as we were making this show uh-huh. and coming up with the idea of it, because it's a guy who, look, you know, it's weird. It's like uh, like about 10 years ago, I walked into my agent's office, like, you know, come on, what am I going to, I got to drum up business, basically. Yeah. And, you know, when I, you know, I had a bunch of characters that I did this being one of them but I'm not on SNL and yeah. nor am I gonna be at that point age 42 and yeah so they're like you know funny or die exists go do a short there which I did and with and you say like and look maybe if it's good you develop it into something sure but that never happened right that actually happened with this but and it took that long huh I mean that was 10 made years the ago short and then we were gonna make it as a movie and yeah. we got uh, six weeks into prep and then they pulled the financial plug and to great loss of money and funny that I stayed with it I give him a lot of I'm very appreciative but you know I thought of you because in the same way that I was able thanks to digital media yeah I was able to kind of reinvent myself or do it, go completely. I wasn't going to pitch this at NBC and they weren't going to buy it. Yeah. And then if they were going to buy it, they were going to completely fuck it up. Right. Which I've had happen a couple of times. Yeah. So 
to be able to do that and go, well, fuck it, I'm going to do what I want to do. And then people go, hey, that's actually good and yeah. like it. And then it actually does lead to something creative is is awesome. And that happens to Jim Brockmeyer. Oh, really? Of, yeah, he reinvents himself as this After guy who'll snaps. say whatever on the air, you know. Oh, yeah, we, yeah, yeah. That, that seems to be working for public people. Yes, like, which he has mixed feelings about, but <laughs> yeah. still, it's like, I mean, I can go on the air and be some kind of weird drunk and people will listen. All right, awesome. It's yeah. like network, you know. It's, it's like, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm mad as hell. And I'm not going to take, take it, it anymore. anymore. Yes. Well, that's great. So there, how many episodes of this thing? We did eight. Yeah? yeah? And you're the guy all the way. I'm Jim Brockmire the entire time, Mark Merritt. And he's got a wife and children. No, and no. God, no. <laughs> he left his whore of a wife publicly out of her, you know. Yeah, oh, right, right. So that really happened. And right. which turns out she was this sex addict. He had no idea for years. <laughs> She was the only woman he had ever had sex with. They met in high school. <laughs> she was out there. Ruined his life. He went off traveling the world and calling, you know, Finnish Latvian wife-carrying competitions, which actually exist. Did you shoot internationally? No, no, no. Oh. He just tells them. Oh, he tells the story. Where'd you shoot all of it? In Atlanta. Oh, yeah? In Macon. Oh, really? But, yeah. It's set in actually Morristown, like Western Pennsylvania, but uh -huh. we shot it. Everything shoots down there. It's the law. You must shoot down there. In Atlanta. So they've got the, the tax uh, benefits down there. Is that why? Because I know CNN and uh, the Adult Swim and a lot of, there's a lot of yeah. TV At the presence. time we were there, there were 57 shows shooting there. 57. So they did the tax incentive thing, I guess. The, they do, the but like did. a lot of states do that. New York even does it. New Mexico, where I grew up, does it. Like yes. big time. They but built that, a studio out there. Yes, but then it... It goes musical chairs a bit because then, uh, it, it only for a few years I think can a state can a state sustain how cheap it is to be there. Yeah. Then the prices start to kind of go up, and then Hollywood goes elsewhere because it's the next state that's hungry for it. Right. Well, it used to be Vancouver. Yeah. Is that still happening, Vancouver? I believe that it is. Yeah. But not as much as it used to. How's the kid doing? He's awesome. Yeah? Yeah, he's truly awesome. You go out to Central Park and stuff? We live right on Central Park, yeah. Oh, it's so nice, we're there huh? constantly, yeah. Oh, you got, the, you got the good New York thing going. Oh, I love that park. Park's a miracle. Are you going to musicals and stuff? I have been to many a musical. Yeah? Yeah, I, I'm due to, like, I haven't seen a lot of the latest spate, like Dear Evan Hansen, and uh -huh. I guess Jake Gyllenhaal's about to Sunday in the Park, which is supposed to be great, and... That's exciting. You like it. You like doing the movie? Uh, That's the another reason theater. I love New York. Yeah. I like doing theater. I did a play at the public about a year ago, and I really like going to What'd the What'd you theater. do at the public? I did a play with John Krasinski and Claire Danes called Dry Powder about uh, private equity in New York. Oh, really? Um, was it good? It was very good. A woman named Sarah Burgess, a young woman, young, aspiring, uh, wonderful writer named Sarah Burgess. Yeah. It was the first play. And um, that Claire Danes is a very earnest individual. She is. She's a very intense actress. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> yes. I've had her in here, and it's sort of like it, she's in it and straight up. And uh, you know what I mean? It's not. Yeah. It, it's it, it's intense. Yeah. She's uh, she brings that energy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. She it was. I mean, she doesn't do theater all that often. Yeah. So she was very focused on 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 doing her best, and it went well. It did actually. I did, really enjoyed doing it. Did you go see Hamilton with the kid? Of, I didn't bring the kid. You didn't. The kid loves the music, right? But I, you know, I'm still old school enough. I think that's actually there's too much. There's too, too I, much uh, dirty well, words. I also, and, you know, besides that, yeah, um, there's too much to try to explain to him afterwards, right? And then <laughs> also see something like that when you can actually appreciate it, right? Like even that goes for Star Wars. Too. Yeah, I'm like that's a big deal, right? Don't. 
Right, right. Don't do it too young. Yeah, watch it when you know yeah. what's going on. Well, it's like you're old school in that, like, I don't want to have to backload explaining things when it can happen organically. Why not, you know, let the kid be out in the world and yeah. come back and go like, what does that mean? As opposed to just it all dumped on him one night and you got a lot of questions to answer. Exactly. <laughs> like, we, look, we, we showed him Star Wars because yeah. the movie was coming out yeah. and all the kids in the class were talking about it. Right. So he was behind the curve and he, I was like, all right, I'll show you this because technically- The first one? The, the Yeah, the first three. Okay. The good ones. Yeah. And, you know, sure enough, I had to pause it every two minutes to explain what he was seeing. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It, well, it's it was just beyond his reach following right. a plot like that. Right. Oh, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah just yeah. like, why, not... wait a minute. Why is Luke doing that? <laughs> Look, his <laughs> uncle and aunt who raised him were just killed. So there's no reason for him to stay on the planet. They should have like a, uh, what do you call it? Uh on the extras where you have uh, <laughs> like they should have parents explaining on the extras right? for for kids that are too young like where just a little just a parent going alright if you're under seven <laughs> exactly. what's happening the whole time the movie turned into a five hour experience because they had to stop and explain it all is he a sports kid he's more of a like a I mean he actually is quite uh, coordinated and yeah. athletic, but he takes after his mother and prefers music and magic. So, how are you going to get him into the Mets? What are you going to do? Oh, I just say uh, he has absolutely no choice about that. Yeah, I just bring him. Yeah, and if he's ha if he'd rather focus on hot dog and ice cream, that's fine with me. But you want to make sure you did your job as a as a sports fan, as yes. a Mets fan, to, to at least make you know indoctrinate the kid. He'll take it from there. Totally, he can take it or leave it, but I'm going to present it. <laughs> So what what do you got going today? After I leave you, Mark Marin, I'm headed over to my friend Rich Eisen's, where I'm going to do his podcast, yeah. both as myself and then as Brock Meyer. I do a lot of Brock Meyer shtick with him. He's a oh, friend yeah. of mine. You have a, you have a costume? I actually do. I have my Brock Meyer so, oh, drag so, with So me. the next thing you're doing is also on video? Yes. All uh, right, so you're going to do half hour or whatever is I'll you. I'll do myself, and then we'll pre-tape something for later as Brock Meyer. Oh, yeah. God. Yes. And uh, what, what's the big rollout? What, do you, what are they going to do for you? You know, the, res the response to this has been awesome. I have, you know, you know I'm going to do Colbert. Yeah. I, I'm a New York guy. But like, you know, I got a Vanity Fair spot, which I've never cracked Vanity Fair before. I was like, nice. really? I was like, wait a minute, really? They're really? going to do a little piece on you? little piece, yeah. yeah. And then uh, Howard Stern, I've never... Never been on Stern? Never been on Stern. Going to go on Howard. Oh, that'll be fun. Yeah, I'm, you know. I was nervous about doing it. I only did it once, and it took years. It was only a few years ago. And I was just, uh, I was terrified. I'm a little nervous about it, too. I, I just kept thinking, like, oh, what's he going to find? What's he got on me? What's he going to come at me? Exactly. He? But he's a thoughtful guy now. He's a little different. Yeah, no, totally. different tone. Yeah, he A little self-aware. Yes. Done a little therapy. He's a little older. He's yeah. softened a bit. For years, I've really wanted to get on the show. I have been a fan. Yeah. So I'm, I'm very excited to go chat with well, him. That's, well, that's thrilling because like if you are, and you, obviously even if I'm not, it's not that I'm not a fan, but like he is Howard Stern. Yeah. You so know. There's few, as you get older, there's fewer and fewer things that make you go like, I'm excited Look, about that. I'll tell that. you that yeah. play I did. Yeah. We had some fancy folks come. You yeah. Know, it was the public. And sure. I, I don't really get nervous about that stuff. Right. You know, but the night I knew that Howard was there, was the only night that I was pretty uptight <laughs> performing. <laughs> yeah. I just really wanted to do well for Howard. I think it may be also knowing that he, he'll he probably talk about it the next day. I mean, he always talks about whatever he did the night before. And, did he? You know, it, he did. Yeah. And he was very kind, actually. But, you know, if you suck, then he's going to say, yeah, that ain't going to say He didn't do it. No, he was actually very complimentary. Well, I'm just happy he's going to the theater. 
I know. I, I, I get, he doesn't usually, I think. I think he's friends with John Krasinski through Jimmy Kimmel. And, oh, okay. And because, like, you know, you, it used to be his schedule didn't really allow him to do anything. Yeah, no, you know, true. But now I think it's a little, a little easier. You've got a little more time. Yes. Well, well, best of luck with it. And say hi to Jen and Christine and the gang. I will. At IFC. Uh, I, you know, despite, you know, what, however difficult I became in moments, uh, they were very supportive. Oh, I see. And they were Therein good. lies a tale or two, eh? <laughs> I'm going to go ask about this. Now. I'll tell you when we get off the mic. <laughs> I'll tell you it all and I'll tell you what to look out for. But great, great, uh, great creative, supportive uh, people over there. They are actually. They are. They've no, been, definitely. They, they definitely. write. They don't overnote you. They they give you suggestions and say do what you feel is right. Sometimes they're good suggestions. I mean, you yeah. know, it's not network. It's not like a bunch of people second guessing themselves, wondering, uh, you know, who they can blame when it fails. I've been through so much of that. Yeah, I bet. It's so soul crushing. It's horrible. I I I just uh, I don't. I'm not cut out for it. It's very hard. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, it's why it's thrilling about this. You know second golden age of television we're living in where at least you can go you know however it might be frustrating where maybe it's hard to get traction or eyeballs which it is but you can make the thing man just to be able to do what you want like you know i remember you know jenji cohen for example who created Uh orange is the new black and she was a writer on mad about you back in the day when i was there and that was a pretty good show but i remember she was pretty frustrated creatively i just did a show of hers did you? I did the the wrestling show, The Glow. Oh, the yeah. Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling. I'm in all of those. Oh, I, that's yeah. awesome. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about it. It was a blast working with her and Allison Brie and, and the writers, uh, Liz and Carly. It was like, I'm, like, the weird thing about doing a thing like that where we shot 10 episodes and it was, you know, it was intense and it was unique. And then you got to wait half a year. Like, yeah. When are we going to watch it? When's it going to be on? <laughs> oh, I'm having that with Brockmire. Because yeah. like, I actually, I'm so used to, I'm so Zen trained to whatever I do. I just forget about it. Because yeah. what difference does it make? Right. It's like, I'm fortunate enough to have a long career where I'm a character actor. And it's, right. something's going to come up. But I, I really am happy with how this came out, which and, is a tough spiritual place to be in because you get very attached yeah you know to it wanting it to do well yeah but and like, then you wait yeah then you have to wait a long yeah. time but genji it's like so thrilling to see somebody like that who's so creative get to do what she really wants to do oh she's great and yeah. laid back and like you know thoughtful and just uh yeah she's great yeah and, and uh, it was amazing like she produced it too. she didn't create the show that was uh, liz flayhive and carly mensch and it's basically me and 14 women who are and i've, I've got to somehow uh, without knowing anything about wrestling create a wrestling show that's pretty awesome it's did you have fun doing that i did it was my first uh you know foray into not being me right <laughs> which really was about just turning off a little bit of the neurotic and and uh wearing clothes from the period <laughs> right that, that, was, that was the acting job that sounds completely uh, like a good acting advice yeah actually. yeah just uh, don't uh, take that part that you do away <laughs> and just leave the other stuff <laughs> how's uh, mr stutz doing you know phil i don't speak to him as much oh okay but he's great okay. i talk to him sometimes <laughs> luckily i'm not so fucked up that i need to talk to him Here's another good Phil Stutt story. Yeah. I, you know, I was seeing him a lot at one point, and I said, uh, so Phil, I, I think mostly because of money, I said, yeah. Phil, I'm doing all right. I think I'm going to maybe, instead of once a week, every other week, maybe once a month. And he went very earnestly, yeah, all right, you, can, all right, yeah, you could come once a month, but do come because you, you're really fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> Straight up, honest. Well, it's great seeing you, Hank, and uh, best of luck with the show. Thank you very much, Mark. Nice to see you, too.
fun. Hank is energizing. He's one of those guys you get around, you feel energized. Jason Zinneman. You know, I think a good critic is important to the evolution of things, of art. It's, uh, it's you know, good critics can teach you something about the form and about yourself if you're the one being criticized sometimes. But, you know, it's always a bit contentious. Jason Zinneman has always been kind to me or reasonable to me when he's written about me and he's upset me when he hasn't. And he's, you know, challenged me personally just by some of his opinions about things. So that that's a good critic. Uh, but when he came over, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know, you know, I, I, I had a little chip on my shoulder about something uh, to do with Lenny Bruce. But but like uh, it, this was a, it seems to be happening a little more now where we, you know, there's an interesting mix of personal conversation and intellectual conversation going on that I really I, I dig it. I dig it. And, uh, and I was, and once we got going, I was, it was great. It was great to talk to Jason and his book is great. He had uh, sort of, uh, amazing access to David Letterman for his book, the giant of late night, uh, which comes out April 11th. And this is, uh, Jason is a New York guy and he was out here and it was a lovely conversation. And here it is. This is it new? new? Yeah. I'm not used to this. Jason, come on! You're, you 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 have to. I sit and write. I sit and write. I'm not. This is. Uh, no, I guess so. Because is this your first book? Second book. Well, then I did an ebook also on Chappelle, but second second real book. Uh huh. What was the first one? It was about horror films in the seventies. When did you write that? Five years ago, and all the sources were all around here too. There's Carpenter. You've had a lot of them now. John Carpenter. John Carpenter. Toby Hooper. Wes Craven. Uh, I spent five years with those guys. Chappelle, you wrote an ebook on Chappelle. Mm-hmm. He's uh, been elusive for me. I mean, I run into him, I talk to him. He acknowledged it, and I I made the offer to him. You did, yeah. But I I mean, I think with him, it's like you're gonna have to catch him in some weird moment where I think, he. I think that's exactly right. I think if you like, you see people who bump into him at a club and then spend the next 24 hours with him. Well, that's it. You know, like if I had the equipment in the car or something, or, right. <laughs> you know, I was like, you know, when we do it now, it's like, all right, you know, maybe that would happen. But I've, you know, I've known the guy. Well, I, I can't say that I know him, but I mean, I remember when he came to New York when he was like 17 or whatever, however old he was. Right. I mean, I was there, you know, working, you know, coming up myself. So I remember him as a kid. Right. I've had, you know, pretty long conversations with him at different junctures in life. Right. But, you know, he's sort of uh a mythic presence in a way. Well, he's become, I mean, it's interesting. I, I don't think he designed this, but you know, if you look back when he left Comedy Central, yeah. from a pure career move, at the time it seemed crazy. Yeah. But I think you could look back and say that was the smartest move he could have done. Because he turned down whatever it was, $50 million, and he was probably one of the most popular, if not the most popular comedians in the country. Yeah. But he became mythic. And he remains, he could show up in any city, Yeah. announce a show the day of, and it's packed. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. And 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 but the real hinge to that was it may have been in retrospect and framing it retrospectively as a great career move is that the fact that he delivers the goods is is everything. True. So like, you know, if he did what he did and then showed up and stunk, it would have been a bad thing. <laughs> right, right. True, true. <laughs> but, you know, he he happens to have the goods uh, consistently and remains interesting and engaged and intelligent and funny. So it, it continues on. But a lot of people, as you know better than anyone, a lot of people have the goods and then they think, well, if I don't get on TV, mm-hmm. then it's, people aren't going to see it. What's, what's I think exciting about Chappelle, the, la- the late Chappelle, 
is he is an event. You know, he's a live stand-up event. You have to go. You have to work to go to see him. Sure. I, there are other guys like that. There, there, are. there are. I mean, I think that, you know, uh, I mean, that they don't have the same heft uh, of cultural importance. But, you know, Brian Regan, I haven't seen him on TV in a million years. That's and true. he's a huge act. That's true. You know, Gaffigan is not really on TV that much. You know, everything's sort of fragmented. I mean, it seemed that your career sort of hinged on your specials at some other point in time. But, I mean, it seems now that maybe someone will watch your special. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, you, you just did your third hour for whoever. <laughs> yeah, I hope people can find it. Well, I think also what's happened is now everyone's so accessible. You become, you know, you, 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 that, you know, if you're on Twitter, you're on YouTube, you're, yeah. that going back a little bit, not letting people see you has a different kind of power than it did before the before social media. Before I, th the I think if you do have some momentum, yeah. I, I think that you know that only applies to certain people that you know occupy a a a large space in the cultural consciousness. You, yeah, yeah. you know, like if I, if I disappeared for a year. I don't think, uh, you know, when I came back, you know, I'd be filling arenas or anything. I don't know about that. I don't know. <laughs> I'll tell you, I, when I did the Chappelle book, uh, you know, Chappelle's from D.C., which mm -hmm. is where I'm from. And so I spent a lot of time in the D.C. stand-up scene in the 80s. And I talked to his uh, best friend from high school who started as a stand-up with him. Dave? Uh, yes. Yeah. Dave Edwards. And uh, he said that Chappelle always talked about how much he loved uh, Bobby Fischer. Yeah. And how Bobby Fischer disappeared. Yeah. And he became big. Now, I don't know, clue if that was that's real or whatever. But that's right. what he said. I was. I've always been fascinated by that comment by Bobby by, Fischer, the chess player. The chess player, right? That that Bobby Fischer was the greatest chess player in the world. He played Spassky. This, you know, the, uh -huh. and uh, and then he went MIA. Uh -huh. And he returned. You know, you know, and he, he he seemed like kind of a crackpot. But but the fascination about him, right? The famous movie sure. searching for Bobby Fischer. Uh -huh. uh, uh, endured and I just thought I mean if that's even if that's close to true that it was in there that it was in there that's just amazing sure well I mean you know I it's sort of like people have these what well, even with the the current president it's it's it, everyone thought it was some publicity stunt but if you really look at you know how he's engaged and around what for the last decade or two it seems like it was always sort of on his mind oh yeah but and 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 he's an entertainer as well. <laughs> he he really is, and 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 was a part of not just entertainment but comedy and reality TV. I mean, publishing. You know, we, I think a lot of people like you and me, I'm in the media and comedy, have a a different uh, attitude toward Trump because in a weird way, our world's created him. I mean, he was the art of the deal was written by a New York magazine writer yeah uh, and then a reality show producer took that idea and blew it up to create the apprentice and his his appearance on roasts you could see him yeah. honing this i followed thing. him on conan once really and, yeah there's a I, I don't know which one it was but i knew i like i made a joke about him and it was in the 90s and after i made the joke about him because he he had pulled out a condom and just started fiddling with it oh in the middle of his segment and i and, and i made a joke uh i think the joke was um why? Why's he got a condom? Does he know prostitutes carry their own these days? <laughs> and then I said, uh, "Well, this might be my last TV appearance. <laughs> you might find me in the East River." I mean, I said that in 1990 something. When six. was that? Early, late mid 90s. Yeah, interesting. And you know, I was already intimidated. <laughs> <laughs> I've been actually, I, I've been studying old Trump 
Letterman appearances. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do something on it. I don't oh, know yeah? what, but I think there 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 uh, there hasn't been a story written about how huge a part Trump was of, of Letterman, both late night and late show. And most of those appearances haven't been seen or not on YouTube. So you don't discuss that in the new book? I don't. No, I don't. Letterman, the last giant of late night. Yes. He was. I hope, uh, I think so. So let's go back to, you know, because you've written on me, you've seen me. I don't really know you. I'm usually happy with what you write about me. I don't think you've really, you know, you were very kind to me after the big uh, Brooklyn Opera House performance that marathon show which was an interesting show and you did a nice piece you didn't have to i didn't know you were there right that's a weird thing about my you know most when when a film critic comes to review or theater they know the critics there i'm glad i didn't know a lot of people don't know i'm, I'm showing up i had i had no idea are you glad are you glad? I'm, I'm i was curious about that does it did it bug you that this piece showed up that you didn't know was going to be there no i never know when anything's going to be there i you know and for me with criticism or with with people that know how to write what you do, like uh, I I find that generally it, it should rise above a review and that it should be you know engage me and if there is critical elements that if they're thought out I can handle it uh, you know a lot of you know I learn from from criticism I don't learn much from reviews mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because they're usually shallow. Mm-hmm. But if somebody takes the time to write and and is a real critic, cultural or otherwise, uh, usually it's thoughtful. Well, I mean, I, mean, I, I feel invest. I mean, I I don't know if there's another critic who's review. I've reviewed your work in a theater and theater work solo show in 2000. You did? I've, yep. For who? For what? Magazine? For Time Out New York when I was starting my career. You did. Uh, you reviewed Jerusalem Syndrome. I've reviewed your th- you as a theater, as stand up, as podcast, as TV. As I've I've reviewed all of these parts, and it's been absolutely fascinating. I mean, what I, I come to your work in a different way than I do for other people because I've seen how you've evolved and changed yeah. and grown, and you know you've created this. Yeah. In the uh, and so and now in a weird way, it feels like along with being a stand up, you've moved into my territory. I mean, you're I consider this, and I mean, I, you know, one cliche about critics is that we uh, we're, we're failed artists who are mm-hmm. jealous of, of of artists, and for the most part, that is not true with me. Uh, that I never really wanted to be a. Uh, actor or stand up or any of that stuff. Right. I always want to do what I'm doing. Uh, but I, I, you're an exception in that I am a little jealous of, because I know how hard it is to interview. In yeah. fact, that's the part of my job where I feel like I still have the most to learn. Yeah. Um, and it's still the part that I think the most about. Really? Uh, and, I, and I think you, I don't even know if you know it, but just intuitively, you have figured out certain things about yeah. interviewing yeah. that it takes people a long time to figure out. Oh, um, yeah? Yeah, and, that's, and, and in a weird way, that you're someone who I look like, obviously you do different stuff than I do in stand-up, but when I hear you with you know Matt Graham, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've been in interviews like that. Yeah. That's a tough terrain to figure out how to handle that. Well, you know, where'd you come from? Where'd you grow up? D.C. Okay, you just said that. See, that was a bad interviewing thing. I should have remembered that, but <laughs> but you reminded me. So you grow up in D.C. and what what is the life there? Where like what what kind of world do you grow up in? You got brothers and sisters. You... I got two. Uh, I got a brother and sister, both much older. My mom, my dad's worked in the State Department, so that's why we're in D.C. But my mom found is he still there. They're still there because my mom founded a theater the year I was born, a theater in Acting Conservatory, which is now one of the bigger regional theaters in the country. So I grew up around. Is your dad still at State? 
No, he's retired. Oh, okay. He's retired. Um, and my mom's still working. She's what was the last working. administration he was in? Well, he he doesn't see himself as part of the of any administration. Oh, right. He's like he's a like career. A, he's like a career bureaucrat. Right. Now you're seeing all these stories about them, you know, having tension with the Trump administration. Right. Uh, he's you know I, I don't know what the equivalent of my dad would say today, but but when he was working there, he would say politicians come and go, guys like me stay. We're, right. We, we make the government run. Right. right. And uh, so he didn't. Uh, you know, he he wasn't a political although figure, although he you know, spent uh, a lot of time overseas. My brother and sister were both born in Thailand and I spent time in Malaysia. He was focused in Southeast Asia. Uh-huh. So, uh, so, but, but I mean, the reason we stayed in New York was my mom's theater. In D.C.? Yeah, in D.C. I mean, I'm sorry, in D.C. And it started out as a small operation? Tiny. I mean, it was like you, there were actors in my basement doing scenes, you know? Really? Yeah. What, so you were a mistake or you just, they had you later <laughs> in life? What? I was the first time I ever, see, this is a, yes, I was a mistake. Yeah. I was actually a mistake. There was a, there, <laughs> there was a, 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 a birth, there was an IUD called uh, the Copper 7. Yeah. And there's a whole, and it didn't work. Yeah. And there's a whole generation of kids. Copper like, seven baby. Copper se- I was a copper seven baby. That sounds like a good band name. Yes, my yeah. parents were done with kids. Yeah, they were done with kids. And there you. And come. my mom was starting a theater. She, the last thing she needed was a kid, like you know, dragging her down. And uh, but she went. She had you. She did have me. I'm, yeah. I, and that. What's the age difference between you and your siblings? My sister's thirteen years old. My brother. My brother's ten years old. Oh, they were really done. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> if, if I had an only child kind of childhood. Uh huh. The. Uh, and that was like a latchkey kit. Uh huh. My parents had they they had done it. They they were not. They sort of left me alone. And and well, yeah, they'd done it twice, and they uh, they probably had a handle on it. Uh, you know, maybe <laughs> they maybe maybe. But, they, but you but, have a good relationship with your siblings. Uh, yeah, pretty good. Yeah, interesting. And both your folks are still around. They are. Uh-huh. They are. All right. So you're a little kid, and you got actors. Like, what was the bent of the theater? What year are we talking about that the theater came around? Uh, like 75. Oh, so it was so like eight. exciting, like yeah. kind of, uh, you know, probably cutting edge ish. You know, there was pushing some envelopes in the theater then people taking chances still. I think that's right. That's yeah. right. And it was definitely like they would do, you know, the, the off Broadway shows the next year, you know, Edward Albee, David sure. Mamet, yeah. you know, they would do a lot of uh, solo shows, you know, a lot of like, you know, people who were doing performance art the next next year, they would come to DC and right. do a show there. Uh-huh. And, uh, and that was at your mom's theater. That was my mom's theater. Yeah. Was, yeah. And uh, so, I mean, I didn't realize at the time, but looking back, that was a huge asset to grow up. She's a director too. So she would, uh, you know, the, the kind of dinner conversation sure. would be about solving some problem with, with, with some painting. staging. Exactly. So a lot of your childhood, I guess, like she would bring you to the theater. Yeah. I saw a lot of and stuff you were I probably shouldn't around. have seen. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was exciting. I met a lot of, you know, you know, I mean, I was excited to see these plays early and to see, you know, whatever August Wilson would come or Israel Horowitz had a play and he'd sure. come in, you know, the, who at the time for me was the Beastie Boys dad. That was right. really exciting. I was in Indian Wants to Bronx uh, in college. Yeah. Do you ever think about going back and like doing a Broadway show or something? Yeah, I don't know if that opportunity is really, you know, one that I, I can get, but uh, I, I did like it. You know, it, it is sort of, you know, acting is uh, exciting to me, but I, I don't know if I, I lost my confidence or I didn't follow through or uh, I didn't, you know, know if I was good or not. But it, like over the course of doing the TV show, I think I learned how to do it. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I can see that. Mm. And, you know, I was ready to to accept that because I'd seen other comics kind of bumble through a season or two before they kind of lock into how to be there. Theater is different though. I think you'd also, I mean, 
most people who aren't built for theater, but that's not true for stand-ups. Right. Who know what it's like to perform in front of an audience. No, I, it'd be interesting. I, I, you know, maybe I should seek out an opportunity to do that. Maybe not on a huge scale, mm. uh, but certainly when I perform, like when you saw me, like Jerusalem Syndrome, I don't know, but even that night at, the, uh, at BAM, when you saw me, and I did like over two hours or whatever the hell that mm. was. There were moments when I'm in front of like that's two thousand people, and right. and you know I you know the, if I'm at my best, I have to be pretty there. I have to be pretty vulnerable. There's no like you know me you know kind of plowing through an act mm. is not really an option. I, obviously, I have an act, but if I don't have some sort of very tangible emotional connection to an audience, I don't I don't I don't like it. It, it frustrates me. Mm. So when I was sitting there in front of that many people, there were moments there where I'd bring it all the way in and I almost became too small, but I kind of thrived on it. Mm. There was something really um, organic and strange about you know just sitting there on that stage and not doing anything yeah, and I not knowing. I remember at some point you sat on the edge of the BAM opera host stage. Yeah, was right. That, now, so why did you do that? Why make that decision? Because I felt like I wasn't connecting. Huh. So, like, I think it's impulsive for me to at least, you know, make it as human as possible in those moments uh-huh. where I feel like it, I didn't, it wasn't that I didn't feel like the act wasn't working. Right. It was just that it was hard for me to gauge what was happening with so many people. And, you know, and I didn't, you know, and I, I was sort of reaching out and I sort of psyched myself up a little bit. But usually if I'm doing over two hours, it's not because I'm doing great in my mind. It's because I'm going to keep doing it. <laughs> until you know something happens right 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 i mean see that's fascinating to me because i think as someone who's covering comedy now yeah. i think one of the biggest challenges in this moment when there's a lot more comics playing big rooms yeah. is how do you maintain this connection with the audience right uh at with two thousand people and the people who are geniuses at doing it in small rooms yeah you know, aren't necessarily, it's, it's, a, it's, you have to relearn how to play a big room. Uh, well, I think there's a way to play it, but I'm not always convinced that the method works for everyone. Right. Like, cause you know, if you talk to Louie or probably Bill or, you know, some of these cats who are doing it is that, you know, they stay big. Mm. You know, and they make sure the shit is tight mm-hmm. and they know exactly where those laughs are going to come. Mm-hmm. I think the nuances that can happen in a smaller room improvisationally or, or intimacy wise, you know, happen naturally because of proximity. But if you're going to do a big room, you can't really rely on that yeah. as as fuel. Right. So, you know, you got to make sure your, your your bits are fucking hammers. Right. Yep. Yep. And, and, and you pace them out. Yeah. But the weird thing that I learned that I think is true, and as somebody who, who, who has you know dealt dealt with theater, is that those rooms, no matter what size, are all capable of of handling profound intimacy. Yeah, yeah. And it's really on the performer Definitely. to be present for that. So that became the interesting thing to me when I started working big rooms was how small can I make this room? Interesting. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, look, that's that's a yeah. big issue. You know, Broadway houses are bigger than are big. Yeah. They're uh and this is a challenge when you for uh for actors when they go from off Broadway houses to a Broadway house. If you talk, this is a universal issue. I mean, I mean, I I've done a lot of reporting. I'm actually going to see the last Barnum and Bailey Circus is closing. Right. And I, and I've talked to uh moved to the government. Yeah, exactly. The uh the uh, clowns will tell you <laughs> yeah. that, you know, Cirque du Soleil killed clowning or some clowns will say it because the scale got so big mm. and that it the acrobats kind of fr- became came to the fore and it's yeah. it's it's a different art to perform for 150 people clowning to 
2,000 people. You can do it. In fact, you can do you know clowning as well suited because it's right. big. That's interesting though. The acrobats took center stage, yep. whereas like yeah, in in a, a functioning kind of uh, varied circus, it was just another element. It, it was a death-defying element, yep. but it wasn't all of it. Exactly. In fact, clowns were the stars that are beginning early Cirque du Soleil. And, you know, that was in the history of circus. Yeah. You know, uh, Bozo the Clown, clowns were stars. Yeah. They've been a little bit marginalized uh, from most of the big circuses people go to see. Interesting. And that's how you're moving into that piece? I well, I've been thinking about it because I'm I'm writing kind of working on a sort of elegy for for Ringling Brothers. Oh, that's um, nice. Which is, uh, you know, I don't think people. I mean, this is I'll I'm gonna write about this next week. I think, but the uh, people aren't, don't realize what a big deal it is. This is like if Disney closed. Yeah. I mean, if you talk if you talk to someone from a hundred years ago and you told them Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey Circus, and they closed. Yeah. It would be like if you're telling someone now that Disney's gonna close. Right. Uh, it was the circus. It, I mean, before radio. Uh, if you lived in Sacramento or whatever, yeah, and you wanted to see entertainment from New York or you know, yeah, that was the circus. Yeah. The circus came to town, right? A, a lot of our language comes from the circus because that was mass entertainment before we had right. radio and TV. And They'd all this erect stuff. the tent. Yes, yes. That, there's a reason people wanted to run away and join the circus. Sure, <laughs> it seemed like a whole other world. It was a world unto itself. Yep, it's yep. sad. I think it is. Sad. I mean, did you see the circus when you were a kid? Oh yeah, I saw. I love the circus. Yeah, I love the and I love Barnum and Bailey. Yeah. I think I was the last. I'm giving away my whole story, but I, but I think I was the last generation. This that's, will go after that saw Rindling Brothers as the bit the greatest show on earth. Oh yeah. Uh, I, I mean, when I was a kid, Cirque du Soleil was a quirky, arty, you know, European. Right. Circus. It was only in a couple. Yeah. Right. Right. And yeah. Rindling Brothers was a big spectacle. Yeah. And then Cirque just. I mean, what's interesting is if you look at, um, in a way, it's like the auto industry. Yeah. The uh, uh, Ringling Brothers was a symbol of American scale. Yeah. And now it got beat by a fucking French Canadian country and no one gives a shit. Like <laughs> if GM goes down, it's a blow to our yeah, ego. Yeah. How come this isn't a blow to our ego? This is yeah. why I want to write this piece. Like this, if you talk to someone from the 30s and 40s, I mean, Ronald McDonald comes from, you know, Ringling, Ringling Brothers. Brothers. Yeah. That's, this is, a, is a, America didn't invent the circus, but we supersized it. Yeah. Um, it's an American institution. And it's di- and now it's dying. So if you want a symbol for the Trump era, yeah. this is, yeah, I mean, it's interesting uh, that yeah. no, but yet no one's sort of making those connections. That's on you, man. <laughs> I guess so. So you're this little kid, you're sitting through Edward Albee, you're watching <laughs> you know, actors spit and sweat, yeah. your mom's directing things, yep. you, you're, you're hearing August Wilson talk. Yep. Uh, you you probably were they you know you're sitting around watching actors converse. Mm-hmm. You see how they light the place, how they stage manage the place, how they build the sets and everything else. Mm-hmm. But it never struck you as, as something you wanted to do. Well, for exactly that reason. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you don't want to do what your parent wants to do. You know, I mean, I mean, what what's what struck me is when the reviews showed up at the at the door. Yeah. And, you know, for about 10 years, my mom got panned from the, the Washington Post, which was the- Oh, really? And, I, and there was a, you know, kind of a ritual to getting that review. Yeah. A rage ritual. Uh, and, uh, and that struck me yeah. as a kid. And looking back, some of those vivid memories are my mom's response to getting- she, then, then she got about 10 years of good reviews. Uh, what but, was her response? I mean, just Leveled. A- ap- apoplectic rage. I mean, just fear. she'd read it quietly, and then there'd be a pause, and then she would take sentence by sentence, and she would just 
you know, rip into each sentence and then she would And you're like, that's what I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. That seems to have an effect. <laughs> well, okay. That well, guy's getting through to my mother. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, it must be like if she cared that much about it. Uh-huh. Right? It's yeah. so, something's important is there. <laughs> yeah, something yeah. important yeah, is there. Yeah. Um so I mean you could psychoanalyze and say, Oh, it's a rebellion that mm-hmm. I became the enemy of the performer. But but I think it's more that uh i think on some place some level my mom like a lot of the people hated critics she still probably will tell you she hates critics the uh, uh even though her son is one uh but uh she cared about what they said and she was a you know and remains a real arguer about art i grew up in a fam- in a household where art mattered was mm-hmm. a consequence you yeah. know whether you didn't that movie did, didn't just suck it should make you mad how bad it sucked right uh and if a, a, a great work is exhilarating uh, and and discussions about art were not secondary discussions about politics. Yeah. Uh, um, and that had a, definitely had a big impact on me. Well, yeah, that's a, it's it's a, a world of uh, intellectuals and and you know people who believe the in the power of creativity and art to change things and people. You, you know, I I I I worry about that world. You know, my my girlfriend's a painter, and you know, as we were talking about at the beginning here. You know, these books, whether or not I've read most of them or not, you know, represent a time where, like, you probably grew up in a house that looked like this. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Fetishizing book. My, my dad takes my dad's favorite pastime was going to use bookstores, which are all gone. Mm. And he would spend a good bit of his time his for fun. Yeah. He knew all the used bookstore owners in D.C. and the surrounding areas. Sure. Virginia, and they knew him. Right. And he had these eccentric interests. He was interested in medieval history and all the stuff. But it was nice to go to those places and talk to the guy. Yep. Maybe there's someone else sitting around. <laughs> yep. You know, I, I, I completely revered that world. Yep. You, you know, it, it was a world that, you know, I think that in my mind came out of the, um, you know, 50s and 60s. Yep. Uh, you know, where, where you know, a, a lot of media, the, the small amount of media that was around then, you know, indulged uh, uh, intellectuals in those discussions. Like Cavett and even Carson to a certain degree, you know, wh- there was definitely a, a place where these guys could talk about, yep. uh, even in small bits and pieces about, I just watched uh, uh, James Baldwin, you know, on, on Dick Cavett. Mm-hmm. And it was profound. Yep. I mean, it was an elevated conversation on that national, was challenging. On national TV. Yeah. On national TV. I mean, on network TV at a time when network TV really meant something. I well, mean, yeah. The, the, Everybody uh, watched uh, one of the three. No, I mean, I, I, I worry about that. Uh, you know, there was a time when there was a critique of the kind of simplistic distinction between high and low culture. Right. And that was a good critique to have. You, and a lot of my favorite critics growing up reading Pauline Kael and Susan Sontag. But we've gone so far in the other direction that I do look at like, again, this goes back to how I was raised. My mom, in a lot of ways, was a kind of old-fashioned snob. Right. She, high art was better than low art. She, you know, she, uh, you know, you did movies to make money, but you did theater because you were an artist. Right. Now, that's not right. But yeah. but it it she had a standard about this and art films were there to elevate the form of film and could be differentiated uh, from movies exactly yeah she had and TV pff, she had no use for TV now right. she does but she's but back then I grew up in a household that had and you know where that came from is complicated there's probably some insecurity that that that's, that, that uh, goes into uh, but uh, sh- but uh, I think now it's become f- 
that that point of view is way out of fashion. You won't find a critic who will say, "Oh, all of right, you know, no, no, all no, network yeah, TV, yeah. reality television is all shit." You can't even say reality. Yeah, but reality. I think there was an evolution of that too in criticism. Uh, you know, with film critics that you know were taking. You know, people like I, th I think like uh, maybe Kale did it, but I'm trying to remember some of the other ones who were, you know, assessing the history of mainstream movie entertainment. And, you know, once the auteur theory sort of revealed itself in France in the 50s that, you know, started to kind of backload that into the studio directors who had a point of view mm -hmm. and then elevating, you know, what was once considered, I think at the time, these mainstream entertainments, but were clearly the visions of these directors and mm -hmm. kind of established that, you know, outside of the, the parameters of, of what those movies were intended for. Definitely. And that's how you get a sort of more robust film criticism yes. and theory. Yes, no question. And I mean, there are problems with that view and auteur theory. And yeah. a lot of my career has been about questioning the auteur theory in a way uh, both in film and in and in even this letterman book uh -huh. um that that these these art forms are more collaborative than the auteur theory allows etc that said the, the, those thinkers who came about created this intellectual discussion and created a belief in standards uh, -huh. uh that i think served uh served them and then their sort of successors well uh, right that not everything is has the equal ambition we need we, we, it's not just about execution it's that certain works of art have a higher execution and are more uh difficult to access and we should uh consider that when judging this works of art so then what do you do you go to college and you study what history just straight up i study actually uh history of the uh treatment of the mentally ill actually Really? Yeah, yeah. What what We're, compelled you? It's a good question. I don't. I I I I went through several majors. I was with philosophy, and then uh, English, and then I went to history. And then I I had a professor who I really liked who studied it, and I was interested in, <clears throat> uh, you know, the sort of mental hospital as institution as a yeah. way to keep people out. You know, mm -hmm. not just as a and the way that the our definition of mentally ill has changed over the yeah. uh, generations and what that says about us as a culture. Yeah. Um. And uh. And then I got fascinated. I really interesting. I wrote my thesis on in the early century. There's this millionaire named Harry Thaw who shot and killed uh, Stanford White, who was probably the most famous architect of his day. Yeah. On top of Madison Square Garden, and uh, over a woman. He was uh, Stanford White was sleeping with his wife. Mm. And the, the 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 trial about it, which was like the OJ trial of this yeah. day, had this great debate over. He pleaded insanity, insanity. And so I, I because I think I like this the sort of story. The yeah. story is so like great in New York, and and uh, I got dug in and, and made it all about the the sort of debate among shrinks of the day. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, but there's no good reason for it. I just I, I didn't really have a lot of direction to be honest with you about what I wanted to study. But there, I guess it was that per, that focus seems sort of compelling. And loaded up and and full of possibilities of, uh, you know, kind of like trying to contextualize, uh, you know, sordid and uh, disturbing vulnerabilities in people. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's I mean, it's great stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Like what? And also like how you could be considered crazy in one generation, but three generations later. Yeah. Not or how. The number of the you know the DSM has been sure. grown, and what what we now know is we, yeah. being gay used to be you know mentally pathological. Ill. Yeah, logical. This I mean, you can learn a lot about us as a culture on how well, we yeah, treat I, our I, mentally ill. Because like this is a unique thing that you have. You you are the first New York Times comedy critic. Mm -hmm. That was a position that was made for you. 
well, I was, I, 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 I uh, in, in a lot of ways, what's great is that I, I, I kind of helped uh, make it. Mm-hmm. Like uh, they knew they wanted to cover comedy and they had a few ideas about what they didn't want to do. But I, one of the benefits is I got to kind of map out what it would look like. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but it took a while. I mean, I covered theater before that for about 10 years. Right. So h- how do you get into that? How, like, cause I did a little uh, film reviewing in college yeah, for the yeah. paper. I did a little tiny bit, but the truth is I didn't do it at journalism school. I didn't do that much. I, you know, I wrote a few reviews here and there in uh-huh. college, but, but, uh, you know, everything happened by accident. Oh yeah. Everything happened by accident. Like what was the first accident? I mean, I got out of, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I went to this publishing course in Radcliffe, which, which, uh, was recommended to me and really teaches people how to be in book publishing. Mm-hmm. And I really hated it. And my first published story was in Salon and it was yeah. like a critique of this thing. Yeah, uh, of the thing you were studying. Of the thing I was, yeah, of the, the course I did. And it Troublemaker. Was, exactly. Yeah. And that was, I, I enjoyed, I that that was the first thing I published. Then I got a job at the Jewish Forward, yeah. the newspaper, and I got fired from the Jewish Forward. For what? Uh, well, this is a, this is, I, I'm responsible for the uh, most anti-Semitic thing to appear in the uh, august history of the Jewish Forward. Oh, yeah? Uh, yeah. I uh, m- My job, I was a copy editor and yeah. I was, I had one one of my jobs was to type in all the letters to the editor. Yeah. And we had this one letter to the editor from an old lady, or I assume it was an old lady, uh, in Virginia responding to an article about Hebrew schools. And like yeah. half the articles were about Hebrew schools. And yeah. And she was talking about how in her day the Hebrew schools were better. The rabbis were better and the yeah. students were better. And she had one sentence which said it was, we all knew that Micah taught us first to do justice, then to love mercy. Now I'm typing and, you know, typing, 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 typing. There's like tens Who's of thousands Micah? of words. Some figure in the Bible. Okay. I, I don't know. I, you right. know I'm bad you. But the, uh, so uh, I make a typo, which then gets past all the editors and into the Jewish forward. Whoa, whoa. Instead of we all knew that Micah taught us first to do justice, then to love mercy, I wrote, we all knew that Micah taught us first to do justice, then to love money. Uh-huh. So this woman picks up the, the paper, sees that she said under her name, calls up the editor of the Jewish forward. I'm fired that day. And it was an honest typo? <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> this goes back to Freud, I guess. Uh, no, it was an honest typo, but it was a low moment for me because I didn't know what I was. I was unemployed for a while. I needed to pay my rent. I mean, New York was cheaper back then, but I, you know, I didn't. Yeah. It was uh, desperate times. And, and it was, uh, now it's, it's a great story. I love telling the story, but it was a, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And it was the uh, I temp for a while, and then I got a job um, at City Search, which was like the first online boom, was like Time Out Online. Yeah. And I worked as a book editor and I did reviews here and there. Yeah. And a job opened up at Time Out New York for a theater uh, critic when I was real young. And really just be, I think probably because I grew up around theater. Most 22 year olds haven't seen all of David Mamet's works, you know? <laughs> yeah. But, and I hadn't because I was, because theater's too expensive. That's, yeah. that's why comedy is sort of past it in cultural re- re- right. you know, re- relevance. And uh, so I had, just bad, no, no, no you know, credit to me. I just grew up around it. So I got a job at Time Out reviewing downtown stuff, which is where I reviewed you for the first time. The and Jerusalem Syndrome. The Jerusalem Syndrome. And I was pretty much under the radar because I wasn't covering Broadway. I could, yeah. I could screw up without yeah. big And it was Time Out, which was primarily a guide. Yes. You, you know, like it, the, the pressure was different. It was really just a listing book, a magazine. Yes, yes. And they, yeah. and you could, they, they, you had a little more word count than you do now. But the, uh, so out from there, a the Times um, had, back then had a Friday column for theater news 
gossip business stuff. That was a very powerful column that had been around for for a long time. Yeah, that was where if you were a Broadway producer and you wanted to announce you were doing uh, a new musical, uh-huh. you would break it in that column. Right. And the guy left. Yeah. And th- that I got, I applied and got that job, which was the scariest year and the year I learned the most in my life about how to be a reporter. Well, um, because you like, this was an establishing that had a format in a way. Yeah. And you had to then be this, uh, this greenhorn in the world of New York theater. And you had to be brought through the, uh, what do you call it? Uh, run through the, 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 not the rings, the, the, you had an obstacle course of the, uh, well, obstacle course, but sort of like, you know, it's a baptism by fire. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in the politics in New York theater. Will you ever see Sweet Soul Success? Yeah. I mean, it's like that. <laughs> it's everyone's lying to you. And you got to, fi- and you have this, you know, you have this column, which is everyone wants to get in. Yeah. But you, and you have to, uh, the, the coin of the realm is breaking news, right? So right. you have to, and the problem is, it was at the same time the internet was 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 beating uh-huh. the papers. So you, you'd have to threaten producers. I, my job was to go out to with Broadway producers every day at lunch, right? And try to dig <laughs> up stories, or do if a big, you know, a lot of gossip. I was doing yeah. gossip column stuff, <laughs> and uh, and I was this 26, 27 year old kid who, you know, I was just be. And these are the greatest liars in the world, the Broadway producers, right? They right. were so, uh, and uh, and it was the times, which was very intimidating. So. Um, and I remember the first week, because um, basically the column, I killed the column. I, ba- I basically, <laughs> this is this legendary column. All sorts of great writers came out of this yeah, column. Yeah. Uh, and I remember the first week there, Frank Rich, who was sort of running the, the show. You like the way then. he writes? Yeah. 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 I mean, great. I grew up on Frank Rich. He's, he's brilliant. He theater. is a real great critic, that guy. No question. No question. He's a, and, but I remember he, and I was obviously really intimidated by Frank Rich. Yeah. He was a, uh, and he said, because the, the, the thing is the internet was making this column obsolete. We couldn't, right. we couldn't hold stories. Right. So he said, uh, you got to save the column. <laughs> and his wife, by the way, was the greatest writer of this column ever. It's yeah. like his wife is Muhammad Ali of this. On What's her name? Uh, Alice Patel. Uh-huh. She's just brilliant. I yeah. mean, the, uh, so that I was always, I was just like a year of stress and then they, I did kill it. So I did not save it. And then I was sort but of, you didn't kill it. I didn't kill it. I think it, the um, he couldn't keep up. I was the. Ju- this is one thing I've learned over my career that you are put in some positions to succeed and you are put in some positions to fail. Now you have a lot of say in whether that happens. Yeah. But the 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 situation is almost as important a sure. lot of times. And that was a situation where if I knew what I know now, I think I could have made it work. Right. Uh, but uh, it was a situation that was sort of doomed. Uh. The, the comedy column was a situation set up to fail. If it, if it, if it screws up, it's on me. Right. Uh, I mean, I, all, the, all the advantages, well, that had all the disadvantages. Um, but I was sort of in the wilderness for a few years after that. The, uh, and I was you know, doing third string theater reviewing, and that, that's when I decided I, was, I was, wasn't very happy. I looked to go to law third school. Third string for the Times? For the Times, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, still, I was, you know, it was great because I was doing some of the same downtown stuff. Yeah. Which I love. And still love. Um, and then I wrote a book. So then I wrote this book on horror films. Yeah. And then when that book came out, that's when the comedy job was was offered. It was offered? Well, I got a call. I mean, yeah. it was a call that could call that kind of changed your life. You know, yeah. the, uh, and I uh, said, like, you know, it was from the culture editor at the time, John Landman. Uh-huh. And he said, we want to cover. And, you know, it, the Times had been dropping the ball on this. You know, we, we had never covered 
all these people until they got TV shows. Right. And they were doing work in New York institutions. Constantly. Yeah. I mean, so we would cover the most obscure off-Broadway play, but we wouldn't cover Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah. And we would, or moreover, we wouldn't cover the economics of... Uh, Catch a Rising Star. Right. Right. I mean, there's all sorts of, well, we would cover the economics of Lincoln Center. Right. Why? It yeah. doesn't make any sense. Right. Yeah. But when, so when Louis. Especially because it was invented there it, it, in a way. It, it, totally. Yeah. It was invented. It's, it's as New York as, you know, sure. and you could say it's as New York as, you know, it's a, in a lot of ways, the, some of the greatest stories um, are business stories and history stories. And I've tried to write those. Yeah. Um, and that was one of the first decisions I made is that I didn't want it to, je- I wanted it to be a column. Mm-hmm. I wanted it to do some uh, reported stories and I wanted to write about the business. I want to write about gatekeepers. And, and also service to- the city. And service the city. I wanted to cover these. I mean, this, it's a fascinating world. As you know, I yeah. mean, I look, I've been listening to this podcast since the start. Yeah. And part of what my education, besides just going to clubs constantly, yeah. it, it's, I mean, it's a great time to be covering this field because you got shows like this in which you don't have to do any legwork and you can learn a ton <laughs> of shit. Yeah, we, we're here to service the critics. <laughs> yeah. I make mean, it easier for you guys. You do. You do. I mean, <laughs> when, it, when I was covering theater, I had to go to Sardis and, you know, I had to talk to some old guy who ran the Schubert Theater. You know, I, you just look at the WTF list. It's like, oh, Marin talked to him. Exactly. Let's see if I can pull a quote. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I decided I was going to do criticism and reporting. And I decided I was going to do... Um, I, they didn't want to cover... They didn't think you should cover... Like, oh, the, Mark Marin's got a show. We're going to review it in this, that one show the way we would review a dance performance. Or well, it's harder because sometimes that's the only one show. Exactly. I mean, with a dance or a theater, you know, it's a, the beginning of a run. Yep. So, like, what's the point of publishing something about a show retroactively unless you can frame it in a bigger context? Exactly. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I'm surprised I haven't gotten into trouble, more trouble with comedians be about, I mean, there, there was this question that I struggle with, which is what is a unit of comedy worth reviewing? Right. Like, in theater, there's an opening night. You review the opening night, right? Now- in comedy, there's some of that, like you, Chris. You know, there's people who have shows that are that you get invited to and stuff. But you also have people performing every single night at these clubs. A lot of them are doing it to working out material. Right. At the same time, they're charging money. Yeah. And the you know journalistic ethic says if they're charging money and people are going to see it, uh, this isn't a preview. This is you know, journalist. You cover what's there, right? Right. But also, then you have to learn the way that comedy works is that you know the comic isn't necessarily making money if he's dropping in to do fifteen minutes on a paid show, and all those people are thrilled that he's there, but he's not. That's not. That's not why he's doing. Very true. Right. Very true. So it's a balance, but which I had to figure out because mm-hmm. I want. I want to respect the comedian and the artist, mm-hmm. and I also need to be you know, live up to the, you know, kind of creative way of covering this field, honestly. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I've sort of, it's evolved a little bit, but, you know, I, I would try to not write about someone who I'd seen once. Right. I would try to see, I would try to, I thought of like Mark Maron's set as, as a unit. Right. As a, as a, I mean, not, 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 not one, not one show, but I would like listen to your work. Sure. Well, that's the, well, that's what you're afforded in that world that, you know, was relatively unexplored before you started the column is that, you know, with most comics, you have a sort of like really un undocumented history to the form they're engaging in, to what part of comedy they came from, to how it plays against what used to be. I mean, there's there is that whole place to yeah. draw from that gives it a context that is always 
you know, relatively new to people, I think, to readers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's the way people, when people go see your show, they know who you are. Mm -hmm. They have this context of what you're done Mm -hmm. in the past. And that's part of what you're playing. Sometimes the jokes are riffing off that image. Sure. So to ignore that seemed to be a mistake. So let's talk about the Letterman book a bit. Yes. How much access did you have to him? I started this book saying, I don't need to talk to him to write this book. Mm -hmm. Um, And I said that to, I sold the, the publisher on that idea. And I told my friends that, and I said it for like a year and a half, and yeah. essentially lying to myself. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, uh, from the beginning, they said like, you know, they were open to it. They didn't say no, but they, I was unsure if I was going to get it. So I reported the hell out of it, everything around him. Mm-hmm. It turned out to work out perfectly because mm-hmm. by the time he agreed to do the interview, mm-hmm. it was, he had finished the show and he gave me, he, he wanted to talk. Yeah. And I knew his, you know, it was almost, I think, you know, I talked to, I went, I've been to Indiana, I talked to his old friends, I've been yeah. to LA, I talked to Libra, I mean, I've been all over, and I wasn't on a fishing expedition. I knew exactly what I what uh, I wanted to know, and I knew the things I didn't know. And you, and you still didn't factor him in necessarily. You were good writing the book without talking to him. I, I had written the book without him, but then I talked to him, and it was, you know, it was supposed to go for an hour, I went for four hours, it probably could have gone for 10 hours if yeah. I had not prepared for one hour, uh, which was the hardest part. If yeah. I could do one thing over, I would prepare for a longer interview. He was incredibly open direct he's a great interview and this uh, even, was after he retired this is after he retired yeah and then i basically re you know i rewrote a lot of the book um um but you know i didn't change the essence of the book and the structure and the ideas and the the, the narrative um but um you know a, a good part of it was just like is this true is this true yes and then you know there was once i got that done then we talked kind of more at length you talked about you know the his old days as a weather man a little bit a little bit we talked about uh, there's like the the first chapter goes into you know i think one of the reasons letterman uh got the tonight show so fast and got you know was big so quickly is that he had a long backstory of of performing broadcasting of broadcasting in indiana he was like a minor celebrity in indiana he had the confidence and when he came to the comedy store he was confident in front of a crowd. Right. Um, now, he wasn't seasoned as a joke teller. Right. Um, but um, that confidence, you know, the people, you know, the management company, the people in the show saw. And uh, so, yeah. I, and, and, you know, you could, I have a, you know, I talk about a time at Ball State when he was kind of a troublemaker. You know, he went to Ball State. People forget. People think of Letterman as this older generation. You know, the heart of the culture wars in the late 60s. And he was a fraternity brother. Uh, in a kind of fairly conservative frat house, but in his own kind of way, he created this culture war in the campus of Ball State. But there was a radio station which didn't play rock music, and he would uh, introduce one. He would he would sneak rock music on it. He, he was a DJ. He was a DJ, yeah. and he would make kind of turn the straight news. He would make up elaborate lies essentially, right. and would piss off these like the the teachers and the boss and they you know the it was eventually fired from his first broadcasting job but he kind of polarized the broadcasting campus uh-huh. and from that was the that relationship I, I think you could see kind of echoed in how what happened with NBC yeah uh, he has a he's a very conservative guy on paper right he's yeah. in Indiana small you know broad uh, broad ripple but he has a a kind of his impulse is to be always irreverent towards what's in front of him, particularly yeah. if it's a, uh, a powerful institution. Yeah. Um, but it's not an intellectual thing. It's just his impulse is to make fun of, you know, whatever sure. it is. Yeah, the, the take down the big guys. Exactly. And I think one of the reasons I wrote this book is, you know, I was a huge Letterman fan as a kid. That's a very short jump to speaking truth to power. Yeah, well, well, I think people today forget 
why Letterman was great in the to a kid seeing it in the 80s. Oh, that blew my mind. I When I was in college, I had to watch it. Yep. Because like, he'd have these guests on, you're like, what's he going to do? Right. He was confrontational. Yep. He was you know, not just irreverent, but literally it was uncomfortable sometimes. Yes. Antagonist. He, and he would sit there in it. This podcast, in a lot of ways, I mean, is the only thing that resembles those interviews today. Yeah. That doesn't exist anymore. That kind of hostility between host and a guest that was fascinating <laughs> I, mean, I mean i don't have that as much anymore but yeah but you know you, there, yeah, yeah. there's a challenging you know yeah. what it's not just come on and promote your right, thing and right. do your canned story sure, right sure. and uh there was a sense that letterman was counterculture in this weird way yeah and also we forget you know back then at 12 30 at night that was real late back then there was nothing else to watch yeah and you had kids like me who grew up you know outside of new york who Letterman to me was New York cool yeah. as like a nine-year-old, 10-year-old, right. This guy, which is weird when you think about it. Here's this guy from Indiana who's a weatherman. Yeah. And to kids like me, he seemed, there was something a little dangerous about, about him. Yeah. And in a way that what I've learned is, of course, many comedians had the same experience. Yeah. Um, and there, it's this kind of, it's something that doesn't exist now because now at 1230 there's limitless options. Right. But back then they all, people who were interested in something that was oppositional to show business. Yeah. That was criticizing television. Yeah. They would watch Letterman and he spoke in a kind of code that was really exciting. Yeah. Um, and I think that people who are young um, see Letterman as this kind of grand old man. Yeah. Of, of, and people who are old, had or my age, uh, I guess I'm old. The uh, have forgotten because they hadn't seen those shows. It's hard to find them relative to SNL episodes, sure, which are replayed constantly. Yeah. So I, you know, I was worried. There's a long history of giant talk show stars being forgotten. I mean, how many people really know Jack Parr? Yeah, I, people... I had to go to the Museum of Broadcasting. You know, when I lived in New York to watch Jack Parr shows. Yep. Yeah, and and to see you know, weird Woody Allen appearances and to see Jonathan Winters on Jack Parr. And, you know, and then like I had to go out of my way to watch Steve Allen. Yep. You know, uh, there was a time where I wanted to do that. Yeah. And like, yeah. And with Letterman, like, you know, once you start to learn, you know, what, you know, how it, compulsively he was trying to take it, uh, the the next step past Ernie Kovacs and past, you know, Johnny Carson, but still have a certain respect for the um, for the context mm-hmm. that, you know, you have, you know, you have the mode, which is the talk show. So how can I just wreak havoc on this without fucking with the desk in a way? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and then after he did that, I, as I see it, he made it a forum for personal expression. Yeah. In a way that all great artists do. Right. It became, you saw him every night for 30 years and in his own very ironic, repressed, tightly wound way, yeah. he revealed himself. No doubt. And that's what artists do, right? And that's why I think, you know, the title Last Down in a Late Night, I mean, that's sort of the next step of for we're, we're, the reason Letterman, I think, should be remembered. And the reason he is, um, is that, you know, he's a complicated, eccentric, he, he's a neurotic you know, what I learned in reporting this book is Letterman's personality has got more in common with your personality than I would have thought. Right. Uh, even though he's, and, and you know, one question I thought of is sort of like, what is the difference between like a Jewish neurotic yeah. and a Midwestern Gentile neurotic? Yeah. Um, and I think in some ways it's darker, it's harder to be a Midwestern Gentile neurotic. Yeah. A, a Jewish neurotic, it's sort of like when people, it's hard to be a Jewish comedian for have the press not call you neurotic. Well, you have it's, this weird relationship with self. Mm-hmm that is really the fuel of it like a uh like the compulsion 
of of the the Jewish idea of having to push harder to get somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, is very hard on yourself. So the dialogue between you and uh, your unmet expectations, I think, fuels a lot of neurosis. It's inherent. Yes. In it, whereas you know, if you're repressive by nature, mm. you know, I imagine a lot of it festers more. That's interesting. I think that's I think that's right. I think that's actually I, th- I think that's exactly it. it. It festers, and if it, I think it came out only on air. For yeah, him. right. And, and only if you wa- watched religiously. Right. If you watch it, you could see what he thought about GE through the, the you know a shift yeah. in the way he looked. Sure. The the intonation of a line, you could see that he was making. And you know, I go into it that you know he would make jokes. You know, at one point when the the strike, the writer strike. He did this. The um, head of NBC sent him a toaster. Yeah. He was making fun of GE, so he did the. He stopped the show. He didn't have any writers. Yeah, and he made toast, <laughs> and he just sit there and he waited there. Put the toast in, and that was I see like a subversive radical act. He's like, look, you got this TV show and this 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 major national network, and you're not paying. You're, you're keeping. You're keeping a strike. I'm just gonna sit here and make toast. I'm not yeah. gonna tell a joke. Yeah. I'm not gonna do anything. Uh-huh. I'm gonna sit here and make toast. You uh-huh. gave me this gift. And that was a great example of how a guy who's like a, a, a tightly wound, you know, Midwestern guy can express himself uh-huh. uh, very articulately to his fans. Yeah. Um, as a kid, that's yeah. what I related to. Then I, I you know, I kept, fo- the, the book is about his whole, is a, is a biography of his whole life, but it focuses on the first show and a, about, I try to, Pinpoint. The first late night show. The first late night show at NBC. Yeah. I, I pinpoint sort of three different periods in that show, and they're distinct aesthetically. Yeah. And uh, and you know I talked to everyone who worked on the show, and you know I think one of the one of the fundamental beliefs which we, which we talked talked about earlier is that you know I think uh, most things written about late night hosts all rest on this assumption that I am skeptical of, which is I think Johnny Carson said this once, where he said it's all about the man behind the desk. Yeah. If you want to figure out how to understand these shows, it's all about the man. Behind the desk. I don't believe that. Yeah. Uh, I think that these are huge collaborative affairs. Yeah. And there's writing staffs and there's production people and there's the context of the time and the network. And there's a lot of brilliant people who came through this show who had a huge impact. A big, a big uh, uh, part of this book is about Letterman's relationship with Meryl Marco. Yeah. Um, that's kind of a backbone that snakes through the whole book. But also, though, in, in, in speaking to Carson's statement that it needs to move through that guy. True. That, you know, that, you know, once that that show, once he established what he would and could do, you know, people would write to it and and know where the risks that they could take would be received and encouraged. Yep. But it had to be moved through the sensibility of that guy behind that desk. A hundred percent. And that's why that's in part why um, in the early years I do more reporting on like what the writer's room is like yeah but then because the early years he wasn't some famous guy yeah he was just some guy who was a weatherman and he was you had these writers like george meyer and yeah. uh you know max and tom these guys who went out to create the simpsons and all this stuff who didn't weren't in awe of him right but the next generation yeah they were in awe of him right. they were trying to figure out what he wanted so they it became it, as the years go on it became more and more about him yeah um but to underst- but he was he's building of course on the reputation that was created collaboratively right through him always really right. but um i mean that this is i tried to this is where i feel like my experience as both a critic and a reporter comes into play that i tried to i began with this critical idea that he's important and we've ignored this period or we I want to remember this period but then i sort of take off the critic's hat 
put on the reporter's hat and try to approach it with an open mind and be like, all right, let me talk to everyone I can and figure out like, how are these bits created? Where were they, you know, what, how can we explain the fact that David Letterman worships Johnny Carson and yet to a lot of people, including myself, he seemed the antithesis of him. I think it got to a place where, you know, you tune into the Tonight Show to see the guest. Yeah. I think you tune in to Letterman to see him, yeah. but, but then he would have some people on who like you would you would never you see Brother Theodore or whatever you right. wouldn't see anywhere else, right? Um, and you know Sandra Burn. I mean, the guests I liked were the ones who were the real. recurring. Yeah, Richard Lewis, Leno, Bernhardt, uh, Brother Theodore, and then you know Chris Elliott stuff. And, oh you yeah, know. but also I think there was something bit Letterman. You know, as a kid, there's no enter, no performer who shaped my not just sense of humor and sensibility, yeah. but the, really down to the way I you, I talked. There was a whole generation of people who imitated the way Letterman, the sort of ironic, detached style he had. He had yeah. a sensibility. Well, yeah, and that was interesting too because I always tune in for just him, and you know, and and I was like, and also the other thing is, is that you know, you build a relationship with these people, and mm-hmm. and as I got older and he got older, and you know, once the CBS show sort of got its legs, and and then he had the heart problem, you could sort of feel that you know a vulnerability open up in him mm. about life and about how he engaged with people and about you know, what he thought about the world. There was a, a wisdom and a sensitivity that wasn't there before. Yep. And then you sort of saw him slowly uh, really not give a fuck anymore. <laughs> right, right. And that was beautiful. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Well, what I say in the book is funny because in his early days, he would present the idea that he didn't give a fuck. Like the making the toaster is kind sure, of like, I give sure. a, but he really did give a fuck. Yes. In his late, late days, he, yeah. he really did, you know, he yeah. was, and you're right. It is something beautiful about it. Yeah. And it, um, he became this, I mean, he's, his late period is really fascinating. And yeah. he has something, he became more, um, storytelling. Yeah. He, he, he was more off the cuff. Took more time at the desk. He got political, yeah. you know, which he was not. I mean, it was interesting. Look back in the eighties, you know, you could you, you could watch Letterman and think he's conservative. He wasn't, but sure. you could think he was. Yeah, you know, people like Rush Limbaugh love. You know, he listened to Rush Limbaugh. Yeah, as in the eighties, sure. uh, and Stern. Yeah, who's also totally different than him, but he really respected him. So what you know, what after spending all the time in him, in his mind and, and in his life, you know, what was you know the takeaway uh, of him as a human? You know, like in in sense, what was surprising that where you were like, oh, there's something here that I could never have anticipated. Well, Steve Young, who is a writer for Letterman yeah. for uh, decades and really brilliant guy, he said something. He said, um, everyone's born at an emotional temperature and it goes up and down, but mm-hmm. you have that temperature. Yeah. And he said, uh, Letterman, his sort of natural state is seething with unhappiness. Uh, that's, uh, that's his natural state. Mm. And... The, uh, I think during the, sh- I think, you know, off, off camera, you know, he was often kind of a tortured guy and oh God, I remember the one time, like there's one time where, you know, I, I did the show, I think four times, but the moment that I'm talking about was that, you know, I was going up to the floor to the dressing room and mm-hmm. I guess he, you know, used to run the stairs for yeah. exercise right and it was just me getting off this elevator and just seeing him like, <laughs> just kind of move through. Right. And I'm like. Wow. Right. What's going on there? Yeah. I mean, it's a weird position because he, he's the rare. I mean, I don't know. Now it's different. Now you have a lot of comedians who people look to for yeah. gravity. But he was a comedian with gravitas, like after 9 11. Yeah. Right. And I, my, I believe that part of the reason he 
he, you know, people really believed him when he would, would he be soul searching is that for the first part of his career, he was so detached from emotion. Mm-hmm. He was so, he kept that at a distance that went, it's like, it's like the end of the Godfather when you see Marlon Brando play with the kid. Yeah. Everyone cries because yeah. seeing like a guy like that get emotional yeah. hits you harder. Yeah. And I think Letterman was like that. Letterman was never like the, he wouldn't be gushing yeah. in, on the show. So when he did, which was, you know, at the end of his career, he would do it more or at the end of his time at the show. Yeah. It really had a disproportionate impact. Yeah. And also the way he handled that, that blackmailing situation was oh, spectacular. But it was spectacular. Yeah. I, I read about that in some ways. I mean, I think, I think I say it's one of his greatest performances. Like he just copped to it and then like leveled the guy's ability to do anything. He's like, and it, like my thought after that is like, so what? He's not, he's not the president. He's a fucking entertainer. And he did this thing. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. He did. And he did. Actually, I'll tell you something. I haven't said this, but the, uh, I had this, the craziest experience in writing this book. Yeah. Was, so it's all, I, I get the interview with Letterman. Yeah. And I show up early mm-hmm. and I go across the street to like the Obama pan. And I'm waiting, and I'm nervous. Yeah, um, I had that with Springsteen. I was at a, a Dunkin' Donuts down the street. <laughs> it's bad when you're early. You got to kill that time, right? Yeah. And you don't know what to do. And I, uh, so I'm at the Obama pen. I make up something to buy so I could sit. And yeah. I'm sitting there, and I, out of the corner of my, eye, and it could, this could be like my fever dream. Yeah, I notice I, what looks like that guy who blackmailed him. Yeah, I think his name is Joe Halderman. Mm-hmm. If I'm getting right was sitting at that Obama pant across the street from where I was going to do really? the interview. And I was, I didn't trust my own sight. Like yeah. my, just this, my nervousness coming, but I was, st- I must've stared at him enough that he noticed me staring at yeah. him and was started like, who is this guy? And saved yeah. me back. And, uh, so I, I just got shook up. So I went to the bathroom and I came back and I swear it, you know, it wasn't far from CBS where like I worked. I don't know the, or he used to work. Yeah. Uh, and then I just, I thought it was him, and I went out and did the interview. But I've, to this day, I you mean, I because I was like, how crazy would that be if that yeah. guy was right there, his yeah. you know greatest antagonist? Yeah. Um. Anyways, I'll, I'll, I'll but maybe know. yeah, maybe you constructed it to get you jacked up. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, great. Well, congratulations on the book. And I, I guess you told me before we started, you were just in North Carolina a few days before me. You're following Rock on the Road, seeing how that comes together or what? Yeah. Well, I wanted to see, you know, his first time, his first tour in how is nine it? years. Uh, it's it's good. It's kind of, it's not I, the funniest tour I've seen, but it's his most personal. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it was as compelling. He's probably just trying, he's probably building too. He's probably still yep. working it. Yep. I mean, it was, it was, he talked about, you know, his, he had divorced last year. Yeah. And so he talked about that pretty frankly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't usually, th- Chris Rock has talked about some personal stuff, but, that, but I think of him as more of a political or social sure. commentator. So seeing him open up a bit oh, was really interesting. So, all right. So you're following him. And uh, I, I recently went back and read your Lenny Bruce piece because I thought I was mad at you, but it turns out I, I wasn't. I'm mad at Patton. Um, <laughs> about. Uh, Poor, I think Patton took some shit for that, for that quote. Uh, yeah. I, I actually, I, I, let me defend Patton Oswalt. Okay. I think he was. I wouldn't just throw him under the bus. I think he was speaking for a, a number of people. No, I know, but see, the the weird thing is, it's sort of not unlike not unlike Bill Hicks in a way. Okay, right. right. Who Patton would never say that about. Right. Is that you know my favorite Bill Hicks joke out of everything he's fucking ever done? Really. Right. Is a, a very short joke where he says to the girl he's dating, he's been dating a girl like a year and a half. He said uh, he says, uh, well, I guess it's time to. To you know, pop the big question: Why are we still going out? <laughs> I, and I think 
you know, what gets missed with Lenny right. is that he had a lot of great jokes like that. Yeah. They, they, he had a lot of jokes that weren't just, you know, connected to the times or dated mm. or irreverentially True. stream of consciousness. True. Like he had solid fucking jokes. Yes. And, and I think they hold up. So but, I get mad when people contextualize him as this guy that didn't make sense. And they watch that one fucking piece of film that is him at his worst. <laughs> Like the look, only thing I listen to all Lenny Bruce. I, I, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a interesting subject to examine the question yeah. of how comedy ages. And I don't think it's the same as how great somebody is. Like, no, I agree. Th- there, there's great com. There's better comedy that ages worse, and worse comedy that ages better. Yeah. Uh, and um, you know, the c- context is so important, and uh, you can't entirely i think what what Patton was saying was sort of like just as like a consumer i listened to some of his stuff and i it doesn't make me laugh the impetus for that story actually was this question i thought was what i think is unfair there's a there's a kind of prejudice out there yeah the idea is that comedy doesn't age as well as other art forms and i was and i was thinking about it a lot and i'm still i still think about a lot of this like what are the stuff from long ago that seem like they haven't aged a day um and uh you know I, 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 you know, I think Bob Newhart doesn't change a day. I think, I think there are answers to that. I think Lenny Bruce has, a, you're absolutely right. He's got real jokes and a lot of his stuff is still really funny. I mean, I think that's like, you know, there's, uh, uh, even, and there's some stuff, which is the politics have changed, but you could still get it enough. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I think there's no question that listening him to now in the, in the, in the current context, you lose something mm-hmm. just like you lose something when you listen and you see Letterman now. I mean, yeah. the, uh, um, right now, I, what, what do you lose is sort of the question. The, uh, but yeah, uh, that was, yeah, that's interesting, you know, and I, and I agree with you. I and also, I think that a lot of times comedy that if it's not visual and it's just audio, you, um, you, you know, you, you listen to it a few times and you don't really see the need to listen to it again. Whereas you mm-hmm. watch a movie over and over again. That's true. Uh, or you'll see a play with a different cast over and over again. But once you've heard the bit three times, see how many fucking times can you listen to it? You're going to wait a few years. Right, right, right. So the challenge now in the political climate, which we talked about, it's going to be interesting to see mm-hmm. how that unfolds. Are you on the pulse of that? Are you yeah. formulating ideas? You know, it's hard because it, sometimes I feel like not writing about Trump is silly because that's what everyone's thinking about. Mm-hmm. And then I have ideas that have to do with Trump and yeah. it seems silly to write about it through the context of comedy. Only. Right. Um, I, I've struggled a little bit to figure out the, the way to, but I mean, I've done a lot of report. I've talked to a lot of comedians about what it's like to perform post election. Mm-hmm. Um, and what are you hearing? The first couple of weeks, people were saying things that was like, they were comparing it to after nine 11. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's people like, uh, you know, Ted Alexandro and Judah Freelander. They were both from the sense that, the audience was upset, people against Trump, but also there, there were some pro-Trump people who yeah. were talking back to the stage. Right. And uh, and then you had, you know, Amy Schumer with booing and all this stuff. And uh, and now I think it's going to be really interesting to see the first couple specials that come out that are really digging into what it means to be Trump. I mean, I think in, I, I just saw a, a preview of uh, Gerard Carmichael's first special, and the first line is something like, it's a close-up of his face. Actually, really interesting. I haven't seen a yeah. close-up. And he says, like, are we okay? That's the first. And it's just like a tight close-up. So I, I think, you know, if you look back at Bush, you had guys like um, David Cross. Sure. Who made their, you know, made their yeah. stand-up bones on right. really strong Bush material. I, I'll be interested to see who really figures out a way to go at Trump. He's a unique 
uh, or or to address the 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 response to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I mean, in the short term, I feel like one of the great things about stand up is that you can react uh, to current events immediately. Yeah, and you can talk to in a in an incredibly polarized climate where the left and the right don't talk to each other. Stand up comedy is one of the few areas where people from both sides are often in the same room. And that's a powerful thing. Uh, and I mean, the fact that uh, people walk out, booed Amy Schumer, s- says something about that we're not so fragmented that she's not drawing Trump people. Right. Where if you go to the theater, if you're doing a political play at the public theater, you know, there's no one who's going to boo you if you're, doing, right. if you're criticizing Trump. The only right. way you're going to get booed or, get, or disrupt people is criticizing the left. Well, I do hope that it continues to cross-pollinate and that the bubbles don't become so secure that we are completely living in two different countries. And I think the thing that's difficult is, you know, even with Bush, is that, you know, the people that were, you know, in charge with him were evil, but they were pros. Mm. You know, this is a whole new agenda mm. and it doesn't seem to have a lot to do with, uh, with um, you know, dialogue. Right, no, true. And on top of that, these people are not only uh, amateurs, but a lot of them come from the same world uh, that entertainers come from. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at you know Steve Bannon. He made movies. Uh, Great, a bitter screenwriter. Yeah, there's the uh, Mnuchin, whatever. Steve, the Secretary of Treasury was. Yeah. he had money in other Hollywood. Films. He. Oh, I don't know. We don't have to get into the specifics of it. We'll see what happens, right? Yeah. Yep. That was good, man. It was a great talk, Jason. This was super fun, Mark. Thanks for doing it. Yeah, great time. I enjoyed that chat immensely. So, uh, yeah, I got dates coming up. You can go to WTFpod.com slash tour. I'll be in uh, Boulder and Denver this weekend. Uh, And then the following week, I'm doing a bunch of shows in Portland. I do not know where they're at ticket-wise. I do know I had to add a show. Um, Boulder Theater, April 7th. Paramount Theater, April 8th in Denver. Then the Aladdin on April 21st and 22nd. I believe there's two shows. Yeah, I'm checking to see if there's tickets for that second show. And then I got Milwaukee, Madison, Minneapolis, coming up Philly and D.C. And that's the end of it, the end of my stand-up career. But, um, but yeah, WTFpod.com slash tour is where you can get that information. I will, uh, what am I going to do? Oh, it's also that. That's powered by Squarespace. I'm just going to throw in a gratuitous tag to our sponsor because that's one of the perks one of the perks I'm gonna I'll play a little guitar on the new monster Boomer live.